0: Welcome to Ask the Pastors, a segment of the West Hills podcast where you have the opportunity to ask your questions and receive biblically grounded, pastorally sensitive answers from our pastoral staff. My name is Brian. I'm your host and the pastor of worship. I'm joined by our pastor of Youth and Connections, Thad. Hey, everyone. And our lead pastor, Will.
1: What's up?
0: So today we're going to be addressing three questions from anonymous listeners. We are titling this episode, Grab Bag, Glory, Trials, and Sex in Heaven. So we'll be addressing three different questions. The first one is, why does God need glory? The second question is, does our relationship with God dictate the storms we will go through in life? And number three is, will there be sex in heaven? Some big Questions here, thoughts, opinions. that kick it to you. Yeah, lots of first l- question first. Why does God need glory? Yeah, I, I think
2: I think that's a really good important question. We spend a lot of time in the church talking about giving God glory, and that that is what we think about when we think of our act of worship—to give honor, homage, respect. To, but the question asks, does God need glory? And I, I find that to be an interesting phrasing when we think about, does God actually need anything from us? And I think the answer is no, that God doesn't need anything. But it points more to God deserves a right response to God is to give him glory, honor, praise,
0: yeah.
2: uh, we read in Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory honor, power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and they were created. That it's a, a response to who God is to give him glory, praise, to ascribe worth to him. Uh, yeah. We read in the Gospels of um, the story of... Um, Lazarus passing away and that Jesus comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead and he says, for my glory, um, that it's done in that sense. And it's to show God's worth that he is the only ultimate being who is worthy of such praise and glory. So does God need it? I would say no, but is God
1: worthy of our glory and praise? I would say yes. Sure. Yeah. I went about answering this question in very much the similar way because the question actually assumes that God needs glory because the, the person asked, why does God need glory? And I mean, again, the, as that already said, the simple answer is he doesn't. God doesn't need anything. Um, you think of Acts seventeen twenty five where Paul says God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. God's the one who gives. We're the ones who are needy. Mm -hmm. God needs nothing from us. Psalm 50, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, all the birds, everything that moves in the field, it's mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you because I don't need your sacrifices I I command your sacrifices not for my sake because I you know need the blood of animals or something but because it's good for you to mm-hmm. give me glory it's mm-hmm. for your good that I that I do that ultimately the second so I, I sort of broke this down in three parts then does God need glory no secondly will God get glory and and mm-hmm. kind of going along mm-hmm. with like that's a well maybe we'll get to thirdly should God get glory but will God get glory yes God will get glory. He will be glorified, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger to you, Israel. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. Uh, for how should my name be profane? My glory, I will not give to another. God says, I will be glorified. Um, John Piper, who is the uh, Christian hedonist, all of life's about God's glory. We should be excited, excited. Uh, to give God glory. This is what he says about this is uh, Isaiah 48. What this text hammers home to us is the centrality of God in his own affections. The most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's heart. God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. And so then Piper goes on in this article entitled Biblical Text to show God's zeal for his own glory. He lists three dozen passages all pointing us to this truth of God's radical God-centeredness—that God is passionate for His own glory—and mm-hmm. obviously, you don't need to pour over all of those, but you know, you just read through some of the section headers that Piper includes tracing through the story of Scripture. God chose his people for his own glory, Ephesians one. God created us for his glory, Isaiah forty three, six, seven. God called Israel for his glory, Isaiah forty nine three. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory, Psalm one oh six. He raised up Pharaoh, he defeated Pharaoh for his glory. He spared Israel in the wilderness. He gave him victory in Canaan. And he just goes through, like I said, three dozen section headers here, going all the way down through uh, Jesus, even Jesus, uh, going to the cross, you know, what we think about God's gift to us and his love for us. Piper reminds us, well, Isaiah 43 reminds us, God forgives our sins even for his own glory. Isaiah 43, 25 and mm-hmm. Psalm 25, 11. Um, God includes us in his family for his glory all the way down to the end and the consummation of history in the new, new Jerusalem, the glory of God will replace the sun. So it's all about everything that happens will redound to God's glory, Romans 11, 36. Everything. God has a plan to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory, Habakkuk 2, 14. So, I mean, you just go through all of Scripture. If you were to try and summarize what is the Bible about, it's about God getting glory. And so uh, God will have glory. He mm. will get the glory one way or the other, either from hardening hearts or softening hearts and calling mm-hmm. them to his himself. God will get the glory. But but it really does. I think the heart of this anonymous listener's question comes down to this. Is it selfish? Is, is it narcissistic for God to be this God-centric? Mm-hmm. For God to be yeah. so all consumed with his own glory? Certainly if that was any of us. Mm-hmm. You know, And you hear atheists make this argument and, and sort of disparage Christianity and, and our God for that reason, you know, how insecure must God be that he needs to create people just to bring him praise? You know, it's like, the, like I think of sad, you know, pet owners that like surround themselves with pets that are like really pre-programmed to like love us unconditionally and like how insecure must you be? Is that what God is like? And I think the the, the fundamental difference here between the, those two, that analogy is that God's glory is the most important thing in the universe. Mm-hmm. It is right for God to be all consumed with his own glory and a passion for his own namesake because God's glory is the highest good in the universe. Mm-hmm. For God to care as much about anything else in the universe would make God idolatrous. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would mean for God to, to worship, to, to care as much about... Um, something that that is not worth as much like you already said mm-hmm. that god's glory is the most valuable precious thing in the universe. So moreover and and so then you think about what does that mean for us? Well god knows that our being overcome with the passion for his glory is is actually life for us. It's life-giving. It's freedom for us. It is selfishness and self-centeredness for us that is slavery and death. It's so enslaving to be to be self-centered as a human here on earth. And and so God's calling us to be God-centric like he is, is actually, paradoxically, the most loving thing he could do for us. That God gives us something so much bigger and better to live for than our own little selves, our own little worlds. Namely, for himself. God allows us to be a part of being caught up in this grander story of all of history and all of you know the redemptive story of, the, of, of scripture is all about God's glory. And we get to play some tiny little part in that in reflecting his glory, bringing him glory as we obey him, love him, serve him. And so, so good. it just happens to be the very reason that he created us in the mm-hmm. first place. Again, Isaiah 43, seven is for his glory. And so that's, that's what I've got. Yeah,
0: so good. And that, that first point there that God doesn't need uh, our our glory doesn't. And I think it's dangerous to think that God needs anything that mm-hmm. we offer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it's easy to get prideful and build ourselves up, um, but to remember that we are dust to dust mm-hmm. we will
1: return. God is our creator, mm-hmm. our sustainer. He's and if, awesome. if we don't do it, the rocks are going to do it. That's you know, right. Jesus said it. Mm-hmm. If you're silent, the rocks. will go. That is how much God is determined to get glory. Mm. Absolutely, so good.
0: Good. Anything else else to add for that that first question? That was great. Let's move on to number two. Number two. Does our relationship with God dictate the storms we will go through in life?
1: Mr. Will? Sure, I'll start this one. And I think the complicated and yet as concise as I can be, one or two-word answer would be yes and no. Does our relationship with God dictate the storms we'll go through in life? Yes and no. I'll start with the no, um, and again take us to a couple passages of scripture. One of the most um, notable here is John nine, when Jesus and the disciples um, come upon in their ministry uh, a, a man who was born blind. The disciples ask, "Who sinned that this man was born blind?" The man, presumably before he was born, <laughs> blind, or or his parents. And Jesus says, neither he nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Kind of goes back to question one, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about God's glory. Even people being born blind, it's about God's glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Jesus seems to answer pretty clearly here uh, for his disciples and for us that any any uh, attempt to draw a straight line between uh, suffering and a cause of our suffering in our personal sin or su- someone's sin leading to that suffering is problematic that's that's a yeah. problematic connection to make okay. at the same time though we know that God does biblically we know that God disciplines us even his own children uh, for our good you think of Hebrews twelve seven. you know even even parents, even you earthly parents, and you're not even all that great at it, but you discipline your children because you love them and you care about them and you want the best for them, God does the same with us. And, and so I think about this question I received, related question from uh, a, a personal friend from uh, when we were in Indiana, texted me last week, and she said, I'm curious, you know, I'm in this women's Bible study hanging. So this one lady keeps, she has this this real issue with, um, she's said this like probably a half dozen times now, God doesn't punish us. And she's like, I'm, I'm curious your theology, you know, is that true? Does God punish us if we're believers? God doesn't punish believers. And she links it to Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ now, right? So mm-hmm. no punishment. Jesus yeah. has taken all of our mm-hmm. punishment but then you think of Hebrews twelve seven and and God disciplines those who he loves. And so maybe it's a bit of semantics, punishment, discipline. But I say all that to mm-hmm. say it is clear that God allows certain things to, to come into our life, including suffering, um, to discipline us, to refine us. I mean, that's over and over again all throughout Scripture, mm-hmm. this idea that trials are like a refiner's fire, that God, you know, purposely, and you think of, you know, First Peter and um, James and all sorts of places where we're, we're told to consider it pure joy to, to suffer. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing to go through trials because they refine you and they test your faith and not only test it like, you know, do you have it, but test it like, you know, strength testing, like mm-hmm. how, how strong, and we're going to make it stronger and so you burn away the dross of that lack of faith, and you make it stronger, and you you make your faith, God wants to make our faith pure in him. And so um, God does discipline us. And, you know, but, you know, you think of that word, discipline, I mean, I discipline my kids when they act up, but I also, you know, to a certain extent, discipline my own body. Uh, you know, if you work out, you're disciplining, and that's not punitive, that's like, mm-hmm. Again, you're trying. You want to strengthen something. You want to better something, and so you discipline it. And so, again, um, I think the the point is there's there's a difficulty in uh, a problem in in tying that to specific sins, maybe um, that, that that become punitive. And yet, um, when we're going through a storm in life, um, you know, it, this question of uh, does our relationship with God Quote dictate that um, I think I, I think there could, for that reason, be a, a very real sense in which yes, it does. You know that that God's relationship to us is dictating and saying, "Hey, you belong to me. You're my child. I love you. I want to discipline you. So I'm going to put you. I'm going to put you through this storm. Not, no, no storms in our life catch God by surprise. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know God. God's the one ultimately who d- determines. You know to to let. Even Satan afflict us, and any affliction, any storm we go through is is under God's purview, providence, sovereignty. So, yes, our relationship with God is going to deter. And by the same token, those who don't have a relationship with God, we know oftentimes God purposely puts them through storms for the purpose of bringing them to Him, of mm-hmm. bringing Him to relationship with God. So, for all those reasons, I would say. There is a sense in which, yes, our relationship with God does dictate the storms that we will go through in life. So I say yes and no. Thad, you want to hop in and add to that? Yeah,
2: I I go in along the same train of thought of like yes and no. But with that understanding you already laid out of God sovereignly working through all of those things, I, I think oftentimes something bad happens and. Sometimes people's immediate thought goes, I must have sinned or I must have messed up in that. And there are some natural consequences from that. If I speed, I'm going to get a speeding ticket. That is a natural consequence of that. That doesn't change the relationship with God as far as being a child of God or an heir with Christ. That That, e- that is eternally bound up in mm-hmm. Jesus' work on the cross. Mm-hmm. But I also remember... The words of Jesus in John fifteen that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That sometimes the suffering is not anything that we have done, but it's God allowing Satan to work in ways that draws, pe- tries to draw people away from God, or to discourage us. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we remember that in in the book of Job, that Satan has to come and God allows him. Mm-hmm. He says, right. "You can you can afflict Job." to this extent Mm -hmm. and Satan has to abide within those parameters that God gives him and then he comes back again and says it's only because of this that Job's still searching God says okay I'll move those parameters but you cannot work outside of those that God is still using those and sometimes the trials of life we may not know what what happens with them I think yeah. of my own life, and most of the time, I think it's just to draw myself closer to God and less a way of relying in myself. But yeah. ultimately, remembering it's not God desiring us to do harm to us—that I think sometimes people get that hmm. kind of conflated. That God's that. angry at me, and so He's He's hurting me in this way. But God's not. God is disciplining us in a loving manner at times for for our good for our benefit and and sometimes it comes down to how we view our relationship with God where God may feel distant to us but we also know the truths of scripture that he is within us he sent his spirit to dwell within us so I struggle with the does our relationship with God dictate the storms kind of yes and no but have to understand that our relationship is secured and that the Holy Spirit's given as a down payment of mm-hmm. that in us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that God's not pushing us away, but instead he's drawing us
1: closer mm-hmm. to himself. Yeah, I'm glad it's you great. brought up Job. That's a perfect example of, yeah. you know, the, the no part of the answer is like, it was the very reason it's that Job man. was righteous yeah. for which he suffered because that's that's why Satan went after him. And, and God said, yeah, I'll allow it to, to prove um, again, cause if life was about our avoiding suffering, God would be a failure. But if it's about God's getting glory, even in spite of suffering, back to the then first question. yeah, back mm-hmm. to the first question again. But you know, you, you contrast that with, again, a yes, a yes example, mm-hmm. someone like David and Bathsheba, think of Psalm 32 sure. and you think of David, David just laying out in Psalm 32. I know that the reason I'm suffering, I know that the reason that this child died was because of my sin. Like God made it clear to him through the prophet, Nathan, this, this, this child is going to die because of your adultery and so and your murder. And so you just think, yeah, there are examples of even in a loving relationship, God had chosen David, loved David, all that, that God allows that storm to be dictated. So if I could just quickly, one last passage, be remiss not to mention on this because it's so good, Luke 13, um, where Jesus and the disciples walking or some president at that time, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And uh, Jesus asked his disciples, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think this is the reason you know God let these ones be killed at the altar or whatever by Pilate? And he said, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And he says the same sort of thing about the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. You know, you think they're worth offenders. No, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Because, again, this is a great story. Jesus simultaneously affirms, number one, there's not this simple karmic link. I sin, therefore I must suffer. Again, you think back to even just this past week in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the sermon, you know, Solomon says, look, I, I see this injustice under the sun. There's righteous people who, who suffer the fate of the wicked, wicked mm-hmm. who get the fate of the righteous. What in the world is going on? What is God doing here under the sun? Um, and yet, yeah, Jesus affirms in this, this Luke 13 example, unless you repent, you're going to perish mm. too. And I think there he's clearly referring to not just having a tower fall on you, but eternally. You know, we, and, and Jesus pointed to the fact that we all deserve a fate, far worse than the victims of either Pilate's attack or the tower's collapse. We all deserve hell. And so that, you know, Jesus is using any of these examples of any kind of discipline we might get in this life whether you have a relationship with them or don't. God wants to use it to, um, to, to bring us back to mm-hmm. our sin our repentance our need for a savior and turning yes. and trusting in him mm-hmm. so.
0: and our response is different than that of the world we are told to rejoice like you spoke about to yep. rejoice that God is enthroned over the flood he's king forever gives strength to his people blesses them with peace so we can rejoice yep. through trials absolutely big pivot here to question number three maybe a little pivot we're talking about trials and big or little pivot No sex? Um, I mean, that seems like a trial. Okay, no sex in heaven. No, start with you. Does that seem like a punishment? (laughs) Start with you. (laughs) Start with that. Will there be sex in heaven?
2: Depending on how you define... (laughs) What sex is? Whether you're talking about maleness we joked and femaleness, about this <laughs> or when a man or and a woman act. love one another very, very much. much. Let's talk uh, about the birds and the bees. I, I imagine that some, some of our <laughs> listeners just think this is a very inappropriate question, done in poor taste, just for laughs from the youth pastor. But it is a real question. It is uh, that asked. someone asked, and I imagine there's some individuals who are listening and they're like. If there's no sex in heaven, I don't want to go. And I think we have to address and we have to look at what the Bible says. And I think that the Bible does not specifically address whether or not the act will take place in heaven. But much of the conversation, I think, revolves around Matthew 22, where Sadducees attempt to discredit Jesus by asking him a tough question about if a woman was married multiple times, who is her husband in heaven? And that they try to trick Jesus in this. And there's some some truths that we can pull from this that are helpful, that one, a resurrection will take place. Mm-hmm. That there will be a, rection, a resurrection, that there will be glorified bodies in heaven,
1: that marriage, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Brian and I both are, I, I thought, yeah. anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Erection? There's going to be an erection in heaven. Resurrection.
2: <laughs> let's Resurrection. A little in bit of heaven. a Freudian slip. All right, uh, go ahead. That's <laughs> so perfect. Yeah, Sorry. It is. Your resurrection. A great thought you were having. <laughs> a resurrection will take place in heaven, uh, but Jesus also uh, points out <laughs> that that there will neither be a marriage or a giving in marriage of heaven. That. We think of the purpose of sex for procreation, that there will be no procreation in heaven, that the number of redeemed will be set, uh, and that the appetites of this world will be fulfilled in heaven. So there will be no need for sexual intercourse. And so I would lean towards the question of the answer of no to our great question.
1: Yeah. No, you're, you're right to distinguish between sex Ie, you know, gender versus uh, or versus sex as uh, the physical act of sexual intimacy. Um, and the uh, the, for, the first the uh, former question is actually an interesting one that there seems to be more disagreement mm-hmm. on whether there will be maleness and femaleness. Um, it seems like most hmm. Christians say yes, there there will. Like the our resurrected bodies will actually still have distinction from one another and. We'll still have even sexual organs, even if we're not using, which I don't know, as opposed to being like, you know, Ken and Barbie dolls or something with just like the generic nothing down there or whatever. But um, I don't know. I don't know about that one. But let's let's assume that the, the question asker is a- asking the second question about sexual intimacy, maybe just because that's the easier one to answer. Because like you said that it's the simple answer is no. Um, Matthew 22 at the resurrection there would be neither marriage. Or uh, it'll be like angels in heaven with respect to our relationships to one another. And I think the easiest way to understand this, you know, for like the 16 year old Christian boy who's, you know, struggling with wanting to go to heaven, hearing that, um, <clears throat> I think would be just for me is to read the, the great C.S. Lewis quote on this from uh, his, his book Miracles, where he says, The letter and spirit of scripture and all of Christianity forbid us to suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life, and this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives either of bodies, which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or else of a perpetual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure in life should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer, no. He might regard the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you try to tell him that the reason why lovers in their raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something far better to think of. The boy knows only chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. (laughs) We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing, which in heaven will leave no room for it. That's a beautiful way, a beautiful analogy of saying, essentially, You're not going to need sex in heaven. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're looking for everlasting joy and pleasure and fulfillment and happiness, we're going to find it all in Mm -hmm. Christ. I mean, if we don't even need the sun, like we couldn't live for a nanosecond without the sun, you know, Mm -hmm. without the warmth and the life that it gives to our planet. If we're not even going to need the sun anymore because God's glory Mm -hmm. is going to outshine that, how much less are we going to need sex? Yeah, so, I I mean
2: the the better question is, <clears throat> is not whether sex will be in heaven, but will you be in heaven? And yeah. there is is the more important, deeper
1: underlying did question. Did you just Jesus juke? I did, I did. Jesus <laughs> <did. I did. laughs> juked. <Jesus laughs> Some, someone's got to get us to Do an altar call. <laughs> I am <laughs> in our podcast. Come session. come forward. Start playing piano. Every, I close every headbutt. Sorry, go ahead. I see cut that, you I see that hand? I cut you off. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's it. All right. No, but but we're talking to our <laughs> listeners, and we should. Yeah, maybe we, yeah. yeah. All jokes aside, we don't need to, to car each other. But the listener, the listener to this podcast, will you be there? Will you be? That's good. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to add to that? Let me add this then on the topic. Of of sex in heaven, marriage in heaven. Um, I'll I'll end with this. I'll defer to you guys. So this will be the final word. Yeah, yeah. So this is my last one, and I'm I'm deferring to Randy Alcorn because he's the heaven expert, and he was interviewed uh, by um, Ask the Pastor John. uh, Ask Pastor John. Sorry, uh, John Piper's podcast, uh, after which we modeled ours. Um, And so Randy Alcorn says this about. Sex and marriage in heaven. He says, One of the things that I emphasize to people is that I really think that we miss something when we say no marriage in heaven. The Bible does not teach that there is no marriage in heaven. The Bible teaches that there is one marriage in heaven Christ married to his bride, the -hmm. church. He said, I remember when this dawned on me many years ago, and I said to, to Nancy, his wife, Do you know what? According to the Bible, we will be part of the same marriage forever. We are both part of the bride of Christ, and we will both have, as a bridegroom, the only absolutely perfect, absolutely good, gracious spouse in all of history. And we have that to look forward to together, and we will enjoy it together. In response to someone who says, I'm going to lose the relationship with my best friend, I say, no, not at all. There is a continuity from this life to the next. We will look back on all our shared experiences here on earth like we were soldiers in the trenches together. We had great times, and we had hard times, and we should expect those relationships with family to be special and to continue forever. But regarding couples with no marriage, it would seem... That the sexual relationship is not something that we would expect to to continue to be a part of it. So anyway, that's mm-hmm. that should be a, 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 a consolation really to mm-hmm. us as well. Is that you know even if the sex part of, of marriage is not part, we there is marriage in heaven. Mm-hmm. And again, it's just it's all about finding all of our joy and satisfaction in Christ and that mm-hmm. that marriage. So... Well,
0: that's it for this week's episode of Ask the Pastors. Remember that you can submit your questions by visiting the info bar at West Hills or by asking them online through our website at www.westhillsstl.org. If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit that like button and share it with a friend. Don't forget to tune in again next week. Thanks so much for listening.